When we are in a passage, and when we go through scripture expositionally, what does that mean? It just, it means that we are going in an expository manner. And we go verse by verse, we go through an entire book. And so when we do that, we go where the text goes. I don't get to decide, hey, this is what I'm really feeling like preaching this week. We're going through what God's word says. And so last week we did a word study. Because in the first several verses of the body of 1 Peter, there's a lot of terms that need to be defined. And so we defined our living hope. We defined salvation. Uh, We defined uh, faith. We, We defined many concepts that other religions claim, but we need to make sure that we know what we refer to when we talk about our own salvation and our own hope. And so this week, because Peter is introducing the prophets and this salvation in this gospel in the lens of all of God's word, the whole counsel of God, we're going to talk a little bit about the prophets. And I think it's important that we understand a little bit about prophets and prophecy. And so what we're also going to do through the rest of First Peter is each week we're going to talk a little bit about what our DNA is as a church. And so last week we emphasized that we are going to define our terms. We're going to make sure what sets us apart as the people of God and make sure we understand that and make sure we can explain that. And also why we preach from the entire Bible, why we look at all of Scripture, because many people will say, well, I only read the New Testament because that's only relevant now. The, uh, the Old Testament is just outdated. And that couldn't be further from the truth. There is value in the prophets, just like there's value in the Psalms and in, and in Proverbs, just like there's value in the uh, Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. Because we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed, the Spirit of God worked through human means to teach us. And so we will continue to teach all of Scripture. So the New Testament does not supersede the old in the way that it makes the old obsolete. It just continues and fulfills the old. It completes the promises that the prophets of the Old Testament look forward to. It's not a different God or a different dispensation because God does not change. The same God who was speaking in the Old Testament is speaking in the New Testament. He just speaks differently. And I think the most helpful analogy for that is uh, from an acorn to to an oak tree. In an acorn, this tiny little seed is all of the necessary components to make a massive oak tree. Everything in that seed, all it needs is water and air. In that seed is everything required for an oak tree, but it doesn't look magnificent. It doesn't have the beautiful branches and the beautiful leaves because it has not grown yet. And in a sense, that's what God is doing through Scripture. The first seed of the gospel was in Genesis 3.15. When sin entered the world, God told the woman that there's going to be enmity between her and the serpent. And there was going to be a battle. But one day, a son of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. That there is something to look forward to. And so that seed was planted there. And through Abraham... It grew. We get a bigger picture. Through Moses, it grew. Through David, it grew. Through the prophets, it grew until Christ came. And this beautiful blooming tree, this majestic oak, is on display before us. And so that's how we view Scripture. God has one unfolding message to His people throughout time. We're going to see this morning that the shadows that the Old Testament writers had are in full view for us. And it's amazing to see before our eyes. 
So before we get into our text, and Peter's going to talk about prophets, what is a prophet? I think it's important to talk about what a prophet is and what a prophet is not. So in the Old Testament, there was an office of a prophet. There, there were typically three things that exemplified a prophet. Someone who was sent from God. They were given a message that's, thus saith the Lord, and they were given a promise that the Lord will be with you. Jonah's probably the most famous example. Jonah was called by God in a specific time to a specific people with a specific message, and God said, I will be with you. We know how that turned out for Jonah when he disobeyed. But all of the prophets in the prophetic office, if they are obedient, they will speak the words that God gives them and nothing else, nothing less, nothing more, and the Lord will be with them and he will prosper them. They speak the oracles a word that the Old Testament uses, or the messages of God. And so there's a difference between the prophetic office called by God and prophecy. Because in other places in Scripture, we hear about prophetic words or your your sons and daughters will speak prophecy. So in a sense, when you give godly exhortation, when you give godly encouragement, godly correction, there is a prophetic role there. does not mean you are a prophet from God because the Holy Spirit works in you to minister to others. You function in a, in a prophetic way, but you are not a prophet in the Old Testament sense. Because a couple of things we need to look at about prophets. Normally, if you think about the prophets in the Old Testament, they were not guys who were out for a payday. I mean, this was not... This is not a glamorous job. They usually had a message of judgment or warning. If God sends a prophet to the people, something's usually wrong. The hope was always in turning to the Lord and trusting in him, not in your situation being changed. And it was never, never for selfish gain. And we're in an age where a lot of people are calling themselves prophets. And they are profiteering off of it. And if you don't know any of them, you're better off. But there are a lot of people being led astray by people calling themselves prophets for financial gain. And their prophecies are always, if you give me enough money, or if you do these things, God will give you blessings right here in the right now. If you read the prophets of the Old Testament, it is never like that. Isaiah did not have an enjoyable time as a prophet. Jeremiah definitely did not have an enjoyable time as a prophet. And Hosea, let's not even talk about what Hosea went through as a prophet. But they were called to something greater, to return God's people to him, to challenge God's people to be faithful, to repent and believe. And so those are the messages of true prophets. Because if you prophesy something and it doesn't come true, you are a false prophet. We're going to get into Deuteronomy 18 a a little bit later, and so just hold that, that thought. But we need to be able to discern what comes from the Lord and what is according to Scripture and what is according to the desires of men. Jesus gave us a little bit of indication of of what the prophets had in mind. I'm going to read this real quick. If you want to turn there, you, you can. But in Luke chapter 24... When Jesus is resurrected, this famous sermon on all of of Scripture to ever be preached is on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus meets the disciples and he says some amazing things. Because for those who say that the Old Testament is no longer relevant, listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 24, verses 44 and 45. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything 
written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus is still teaching in the same way. The law of Moses, the prophets in the writings, the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, they are still declaring the wonders of Christ. And he still opens the eyes of his people to understand those. So I want you to think about that and kind of have that in your mind's eye. And we're going to get into the prophets a little bit more in this message. But let's read through our text. We'll pray and then we'll go forward. But think about how God speaks throughout all all time through his revelation and how it has a unified message. And Peter draws us together here. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 8 through 12. 1 Peter 1, 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Lord, I love all the songs we sung this morning. Our majestic Lord, we worship the King because you are good. You've been faithful to your people throughout the ages, and we have no reason to believe that you would not be faithful to us. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. When the sufferings and the trials of this world beat us up, Lord, let us look to you as our hope. Let us look to the pattern of Scripture about time and time again, you have been faithful when the people haven't. Let us be a people grounded in this hope that prophets proclaim and that angels rejoice to see. And this morning, that we would have a renewed excitement for the whole counsel of God, that we would read the Old Testament with anticipation of seeing Christ and looking forward to Christ and reading the New Testament as joy inexpressible and that Christ has come and looking forward to his coming again. Let's pray that your spirit would speak to us and teach us this morning and that we would apply it to our lives and to our hearts and to our feet as we go out into this world as light into the darkness. Let's pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at these theological concepts, right? We were in verses Three through nine, and I told you eight and nine are kind of a hinge verse. We're going to start with those today. But what we looked at last week was our salvation. That God, who called us according to his great mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. This is foundational. This does not change. This cannot be changed. Once everything else falls apart. Once we understand that we were born into the resurrection and died with Christ and raised again with him, we can now start to look at our faith, which is held for us in heaven, which is guarded by God himself. And even though there are trials in this life, it is for our benefit, it is for our growth. 
And we can praise and rejoice at those things because when Christ is revealed in his full glory, when he comes again, our salvation will be complete. And so Peter has in mind a salvation that was accomplished in the past, that is being worked out in the present, and that is promised in the future. And this is where we pick up in verse 8. And he still has this in mind. Though you have not seen him past, you love him. Though you do not now see him present, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Future. God is working past, present, and future and gives us hope in what was accomplished in the past, hope in what he is doing in the present, and hope in what will be fulfilled and completed in the future. And we are future people who live in the present. We are citizens of another kingdom who are walking in this time for now. But yet, in some amazing way, we experience the blessings of that future kingdom. The love of the Lord in one another. Belief in him and his promises. And joy inexpressible in what he's accomplished. Those are blessings of the kingdom. I mean, Jesus taught us that in the Beatitudes. All of the blessings those who are poor in spirit and humble and peacemakers and who seek after righteousness, those are marks of citizens of the kingdom. And Peter is trying to encourage his people because there's this theme of suffering that goes on throughout the letter of, of Peter. And he reminds them over and over again, this is where your hope is. Your hope is in the Lord. Your hope is in your salvation. Don't get bogged down by your circumstances. Because it is joy inexpressible to think about what Christ has done on our behalf. In the midst of trials, we have a joy, we have a salvation that we can't put enough words together for to do it justice. You ever feel like that? Have you ever stopped in your tracks and say, Lord, you chose me. You saved me. All of my emptiness all of my brokenness, I have nothing to offer, but you loved me. Why would you save anyone at all? Look at us. But with a joy inexpressible, we respond to that. I was reminded this, this week about how dogs act when their owners come home. Now, you know I'm not a dog person, but this is a great illustration, so I'm going to use it. Um, when, it, when an owner comes home, the dog kind of loses its mind, right? The dog barks and runs in circles and jumps upside down. The dog is so excited because his owner is home. This is the kind of joy we should have when we think about our Lord, our master. Because the dog knows when the owner comes home, I'll be fed. I'll be taken care of. Someone will probably play with me and someone will clean up my crap. <laughs> and so the dog says, look at all you've done for me. You're God. Then there's the theology of the cat. The cat says, you take care of me, you give me everything I need, you feed me, you clean up my crap. I must be God. It'll take you a minute. I think that is so appropriate and, and, and it applies. But to our situation, are we the one who says, look at the God who's given me everything I need. He's put breath in my lungs. He's given me food. 
He's provided for me every and every need that I could possibly have. And he has never let me down. Do we jump up and down and rejoice when our owner comes home? Or are we the one who says it's about time? Where's my food? There's something sitting there that you need to pick up. I left a present for you. Which ones are we? Because many times there's that temptation to be the one who makes demands of God and to think that we're God because everything appears when we think it should. But this joy inexpressible should remind us of how great our God is and should remind us to rejoice in him and and everything that he's done. All right, back on track now. Verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This word obtaining is is fascinating. Um, It's not something that you had no uh, right to before. It means that you're receiving back a possession or receiving a promised gift. So you're obtaining the salvation of your souls. It's something that was in place already. It's not something that appeared for the first time. It was held for you like we saw a few verses ago. When Peter said that your salvation is held, your inheritance is held in heaven. And you are obtaining it now. The goal of salvation. Excuse me. The, the, yeah, the goal of salvation is our souls. This, this perfect fulfillment of what God is doing in our lives. And it is a promised gift. We don't have to wait until Christ comes again to know that we are saved. But when he does come again, we receive our salvation in full. Because when he came the first time and went to the cross, we were saved from death. And we were saved from condemnation on that cross. And we were reconciled to God. But on his return, we will be saved completely from other things that we're still dealing with. So, okay, what, what does that mean? Because I think some of you kind of struggle with this idea that, that salvation is, is still being worked out before our eyes. It is completed as far as God's concerned. But for us, it is, it is still being worked out. What do we mean by that? So when Christ comes back, we will be saved from the sin in our lives. We will be reconciled to our very nature. When Christ comes back, we will be saved from the frailty of our bodies. We prayed for, for so many different ailments earlier. We will be reconciled to our very flesh. When Christ comes back, we will be saved from the sin of others. We know that that is very present. We will be reconciled to humanity at large. And we will be saved from the curse of the earth. We will be reconciled to creation. What do we mean by that? Work was not always a bad thing. In the garden, work was a good thing. But after the fall, work became hard. It became toilsome. It became difficult. And with the fall came pests and mosquitoes. Bugs and different things that that carry on diseases. And predators, lions and tigers and attorneys. And, you know, um, no more attorneys in heaven. Imagine that. In the new kingdom, the new earth. Um, Disasters. All these things that were a result of the fall will be reconciled to God. And we will live in what creation was meant to be. And that is what a fulfilled salvation looks like. Because when he says obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, our souls will be at peace with God, with 
at peace with one another and all of creation. And that is a salvation worth rejoicing about. Amen? Amen? Now, in verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Remember, back to our discussion on the prophets. Their job was to proclaim the word of God faithfully. And it was usually repent and turn from idols. And usually the people didn't. And then they were judged. And then there was condemnation on them. But then there was promises of of, of hope. Return to me if you keep my commandments. This is what to look forward to. Good thing for us, the prophecies did not end at condemnation. There was always a promised hope. There are always grace to come because God is merciful and his steadfast love and he is long-suffering toward his people. So I want you to see some of these passages. So we're going to walk through uh, several, maybe more than several passages in the Old Testament. Um, And I want you to see how the prophets developed these promised hopes. And these are going to be up on the screen. If you want to follow along, we're going to start in Deuteronomy 18. What did the prophets prophesy? Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. So this is Moses. God is speaking through Moses saying, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. God is not easy on false prophets. We shouldn't be either. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord is not spoken? Of course, God anticipates what our next question is going to be. Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet that has spoken it presumptuously, you need not be afraid of him. So all the way back in Moses, God sets his people up that I'm going to send prophets They're going to say things in my name, and if they come true, they're from me. If not, they're liars, and they will die. So we we are very careful about false prophets and people calling themselves prophets. All right, let's let's continue on to the prophets uh, proper. You know, the great prophet himself, who was quoted more than any other prophet in the New Testament, Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah, it'll be up on the screen. Uh, And if you want to follow along, I'm going to keep moving uh, from left to right in your Bible. So you can just keep flipping. We'll we'll get through these these prophets. But this is amazing. I want you to see some of these prophecies. Isaiah 49, 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Talking about the anointed one, Christ, the Messiah who was to come. To bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. This is where it gets... Particular for us, verse 6. It is too light of a thing, uh, meaning it is not enough that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring bring back the preserved of Israel. 
But I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I'm going to redeem my people Israel. And then, because it's not enough, my grace is greater than just Israel. I'm going to go out to all the nations and my salvation is going to reach to the end of the earth. Jeremiah. Let's go to the next book over. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. A lot of you may be familiar with this. What does that salvation look like? How is it poured out? And these, these theological terms that, that we use, um, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are, are, are going to build on. So Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I, I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. Remember what we saw in Isaiah, that it wouldn't stop at Israel. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and, and, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Sounds like something that could come right out of the New Testament, right? How God works out salvation, how he takes um, his law and writes it on our hearts, how he changes us from the inside out. Let's go one more prophet over. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 27. Therefore, say to the house of Israel... Thus saith the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. Why does God act? But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned against the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. God's telling the people, you screwed it up. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to put my name in its rightful place, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. How will they know? When through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God's witness to the nations is his salvation, his vindication through us. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And I shall be, and excuse me, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from your idols. I will cleanse you. Justification. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, regeneration, new birth. I will put with, and I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk into my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Sanctification. These doctrines that we look at in the New Testament are not new. Paul didn't make these up. The prophets have been proclaiming the same message for hundreds of years. Next, Zephaniah. No one quotes Zephaniah. Yes, we're going to quote Zephaniah this morning. Um, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. Zephaniah 3, 9 says, this is great. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. God is doing a great work in the people. Do we not have the text from? There we go. Um, he's going to change a very speech. Everyone will glorify the Lord. Zechariah chapter 9. 
verses 16 and 17. On that day, their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels on a crown that they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young man flourish and the new wine the young women. God is saving his people. He has never not planned to save his people. And like a good shepherd, like a good father, he will seek them out. And he will make them shine like jewels on a crown. It is a marvelous thing that God is doing, saving his people. Last one, Malachi chapter 3. This is the last prophet in the Old Testament looking forward to John the Baptist, Elijah, Elijah who was to come, and Christ. What does it say in verse 16 through 18? Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. He's not hearing any plea from anyone. It's those who fear the Lord. He heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before them. And those who fear the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. God is separating the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares. Those who fear him, he will save like a son. He will bring into salvation. The prophets, we could go through every book throughout all of scripture. And it will declare what God will do in his people. Old Testament to Christ. And in the New Testament, it will declare what Christ has done. What Christ will do when he comes again. The amazing thing here is that the prophets who prophesied, they are prophesying the word of God. And that word became flesh and became the just and the justifier, leading us to our salvation, fulfilling prophecy. That very word, the word that the prophets proclaimed, became flesh. They prophesied the grace that would work in us. And they were waiting for this. They prophesied, looking forward to what God would do in his people. Because they searched, inquired carefully. Isn't it amazing that the Lord spoke directly to the prophets? Audibly, gave them word for word, verbatim commands for God's people. They heard his voice often. And yet we have more of God's revelation than they did. Isn't that amazing? People who were given God's commands to his people look forward to the time that we're at now. To see this oak tree in all its splendor. And they had faith in the little sprouts that came out of the acorn. Verse 11. They were inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I mean, they were on the edge of their seat. When would these things happen? They were not prophesying of themselves. Remember, one of the prerequisites for a prophet was, Thus saith the Lord, or thus says the Lord. What person or time the Spirit of Christ would reveal to them. So who was revealing it? 
Prophets didn't prophesy of themselves. It was the Spirit of Christ revealing Christ to them. How amazing is that? That redemptive history is never outside of God's control. It was never outside of God's command. It was Christ speaking into the prophets, proclaiming himself. How do we know that Scripture is the Word of God? Because Christ has been breathing into it as the Word made flesh throughout all of redemptive history. Every person who said, thus saith the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was initiated by Christ, pointing to Christ. And what did they predict? The sufferings and glories of Christ. This is the pattern of Scripture. We just finished some time in the Psalms. This is the pattern of the Psalms. The Psalms begin with suffering and lament, and they end with glory. This is the pattern of, of Israel. They go through this pattern of suffering to glory, suffering to glory. And this is the pattern of our lives. Suffering, sin, death. But always looking forward to glory through Christ Jesus. Because of sin, there must be suffering before renewal. Jesus says that we are to take up our cross and follow him. If we live like Jesus, we will face persecution in our life. Let me, hear, let me have you hear this clearly. Sufferings are guaranteed. But so is glory. Because Jesus went from glory, the right hand of the Father, to suffering, back to glory for us. That is a salvation worth rejoicing over. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. Another mark of a true prophet, they weren't serving themselves. The Old, the Old Testament prophets did not live lavish lives. They lived lives of sacrifice and devotion to God. They did not prophesy of themselves, and they did not prophesy for themselves. It was of God for God's people. Their concern was not for themselves or their own fame, but the name of the Lord and the welfare of God's people us it's amazing that God uses the words of humble servants in such a way that they serve and minister to us 1 Corinthians 10 we can't get into this morning but if you want to read through the accounts of what the the fathers of the Old Testament went through Paul tells us twice that that is for our example the Old Testament is for our example It's to show us how God works in the lives of his people. Even though they're rebellious, he is faithful. And so in that way, the Old Testament shows us our theology, while the New Testament states our theology. Say that again. It's it's a helpful hermeneutic tool, so helpful interpretive tool. That the Old Testament shows us our theology by example, while while the New Testament states and clarifies it. Because the gospel that was shown and promised to the prophets, the good news is promised to us as well. And that good news that we have this salvation, as Peter tells us, because in the things that have been, back in verse 12, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, how will they be saved unless someone preaches the good news? I mean, this is the role of the preacher, to proclaim the gospel. And I can tell you there is no greater privilege and no greater fear than to get up here 
Say, this is the good news of the gospel. This is what Jesus Christ has done. Repent and believe in him. Your hope, your salvation can only be found in him. But the good news doesn't end in the pulpit, and it shouldn't. Because each one of us who has been transformed by grace has the opportunity to preach the gospel to others. Has the, the, the privilege to speak scripture into people's lives. To pray with them. To point them to Christ when they suffer. Because this amazing salvation that the prophets prophesied was brought to their ears by the words of faithful men and women. It's incredible. And we get to proclaim the same thing that the angels are amazed at. Look at the last half of this verse, and I I love this. Who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, Things into which angels long to look. I've always been fascinated by this line. That angels long to look. There's a a couple words here that are interesting. This word that is translated long, um, it's one of the most intense words in the Greek language. Um, It means a deep desire or to, to covet. And in a negative sense, it's used to lust. Like there is so much desire in the angels to see what God is doing. And this next word, uh, long to look. This is a, a great visual word that means to stick your, your neck out and to lean forward. And so you, you've got these, these angels who are, who are peering almost as if looking down on what's going on. And it's interesting, this is the same word that, that John uses in chapter 20 of his gospel when the disciples look in the empty tomb. They are peering. They are stretching their necks out to see this empty tomb. They're kind of like rubberneckers, right? We, we have this, this, this term where people stick out their neck like they can't wait to see something. Probably some of my least favorite people. I understand why you have to think with your brakes. Uh, we'll, we'll get away from that. But the angels are rubbernecking. They're stopping in their tracks. Their necks are, are, are popping out to see what's going on. What is God doing down here? And forget those heart-playing blonde guys who are sitting around on, on, um, on uh, you know, Christmas cards and things like that. We're talking about heavenly warriors. Angels are described as having flaming swords and being intimidating messengers, so much so that anytime an angel shows up, what's the first thing they say? Fear not. Because people fall down, they want to worship them because the angels are so majestic. But yet the angels long to look at what God is doing in our lives. These warriors of heaven are amazed at what God has done and each dead person brought to life. And Think about it. All of history, all of creation, all of God's creatures are waiting for his salvation to be brought forth in us, to be brought forth in its fullness when Christ comes again. What we have, salvation in Christ, is more amazing than the revelation of the prophets, is more glorious than the angels. The ultimate work of God as creator and redeemer is in saving mankind to recreate them in his image to declare his glory. And that should stop us in our tracks. It doesn't make our gospel seem so small anymore, right? 
If we understood that, what does it look like to share the gospel with others? What does it look like to spread the good news when we understand that? That's why it's so important to to be rooted in Scripture and to daily go before God's Word because we get these reminders in every page of who Christ is and what He's done and who we are in Him. What are we to fear? Greater is He that is in us that is in the world. As we conclude this morning, what can we learn from the Old Testament, especially the prophets? These faithful men who faithfully spoke the word of God, not for their own benefit, not for any payment. Usually they lived in squalor. But for God's glory to go out, for his salvation to be on display for all the nations. That is our call as well. And we would do ourselves some good to read the prophets and to read all of Scripture, seeing our doctrine shown and stated. And when we are rooted in Scripture, we can rejoice. We can rejoice in God's amazing work of redemption. So amazing that the angels long to see it, that the, the prophets devoted their lives to proclaiming it. We can rest in what he has done and what he continues to do and what he has promised to do. Because our hope is not in our circumstances. Our hope is not in our sufferings. Our hope is not in our paychecks, whether people like us or not. Our hope is in Christ. What he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And they are as sure as the God who made those promises. Because the Christian life is never promised to be easy, but it is promised to be glorious. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are unchanging. Before time began, from beginning to end, you were never out of control. You never stopped being loving. You never stopped being merciful. On the contrary, you are more merciful than we could ever imagine. You are more loving than we could ever express. Lord, help us to rejoice in you. Help us to get our joy from you. Help us to look to you as our only source of hope. Help us to rejoice in the message of Scripture, to meditate on it day and night, to apply it to our heart, to apply it to our hands, to apply it to our our feet. Help us to look to you as our only source of hope and salvation. And help us to boldly declare this, this good news until you come again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.